test us anytime, please. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo ho, welcome to episode 73 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's singing. Hey there, semi pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi Pro Cycling, home of the Semi Pro Cyclist. And let's get cracking this week with another review. SPC Review, five stars by John Sturman from the UK. Hi, Damien. Liked your podcast so much, I even listened to them while running the Marathon de Sabel in April. Great advice for anyone who wishes to improve and enjoy this sport. By far the best resource of its kind on podcast. John, I appreciate that this got you through part way of a marathon. Thank you very much for listening to the show and writing that review. And definitely a reminder to you that if you do love the show, please take the time out to write a review on iTunes because five stars make me go, baby, 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 oh, oh, that was really, really bad, even by my standards. But anyway, let's move on to the articles that I have tracked down this week. And the first one is a YouTube video. It's quite short, but it's based on this idea of top of the hill. Where is the top of the hill? And it's something I spoke about a long time ago with Dylan Cooper on the Climbing Tips podcast. But it's this idea that the peak, the very top of the hill, is not where you should aim. You should aim for at least 1,500 meters after where you think the peak is because that is where you're going to pick up cheap places because everybody slows down at that point. So riding over the top of the hill and learning to suffer for that little bit longer or at least pacing your effort for that little bit longer is more important. And this video goes through that and explains it in a nice, beautiful, visual way. The second one is winter bike storage. I wanted to put a resource down on the website because I've just been away for six weeks. No, my bike hasn't been in winter, but I tell you what, I couldn't ride it yesterday when I wanted to because it was so gunked up. It was full of so much shit that I had to spend a whole afternoon cleaning it, which really got me thinking if I'd spent that time beforehand, I wouldn't have had to waste my afternoon yesterday. But there is a great article that I found on bicycles.stackexchange.com. I don't know if you are aware of this website, but it's a great question and answer website specific to to bicycles but the link that I have is winter bike storage and there is a great section on there with seven steps of what to do to your bike if you're going to store it either winter or over a long period of time. Okay so the nuts and bolts this week seven high performance principles for cycling at your absolute best. Well maybe the final title won't be that but it's pretty much this idea that there is seven principles that I'm going to go through and they're going to enable you to up your high performance game and it definitely continues on from the theme of last week in style and substance because I'm looking at these seven different high performance principles to gain a broader sense of how you can consistently perform at your best. The hyphenated word high performance is thrown around a hell of a lot but but what's behind it is actually creating a culture to support your own high performance. I'm exploring this with the help of a blog post which I believe originally was a talk given by Ross Tucker PhD If you don't know who Dr. Tucker is, he's a bit of a gun when it comes to sports science stuff. He is from South Africa and he did train under Tim Noakes. So that gives you an idea of his caliber or at least his training to get to where he is and he's taking it to a whole other level. 
But definitely when it comes to working in the world of high performance, he is one of the guys to go to for information. And he does also get outside of the high performance world and take a look in, which kind of interests me as well. But anyway, I'll link to the original article in the show notes so you can check it out. But I'm going to go through his seven principles and how they relate to the semi-pro. He talks about these principles in the context of sports and business and creating a high performance culture in a team. Semi-pros don't move in packs. Well, they don't usually move in packs, or at least there's not a lot of groupthink and team dynamics in individual cyclist training and preparation just isn't there. So I thought it would be cool to break down these principles as they stand for semi-pros. Like Tucker says, these principles are not to be seen as formulaic because performance is so complex. Also, like Tucker says, I hope that these principles inspire some thinking and more importantly, some questions. Getting on to number one, people and purpose. Finding the right people to advise your training is critical to your success. Coaches, training partners, life partners, your cycling club and or team. Each one of these have a role in your cycling life and choosing the right people for each job will not only create strength but flexibility and guidance and support. Where I'm not talking about professional support, although you should pay your coach very well. It's more like your swanny is your wife, your general manager is your father, your director sportif is your club captain, your mechanic is down the local bike shop, and your nutritionist is in the feed zone cookbook. But what I'm trying to get at here is this idea, which was brilliantly stated by Jim Ron, and it is, we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So if you make the people on your cycling team, in air quotes, the best possible people, you definitely can't lose. Part of this equation of finding the right people is looking at their why. And everyone has a motive for most, if not all, of their actions. So a great filter is finding out why people around you love cycling, what motivates them to do what they do. And the biggest hint I can give you is that it's not just for the money. Tucker has a great graphic in the post breaking down high performance into four boxes and he's labeled them as getting right people in the right places, give them a powerful purpose to ensure they are doing the right things and then to make sure you do things right. That's high performance and a big part of that is people. Let's move to number two, which is invest in understanding everything. Tucker writes about how small the margins are between success and failure and to think of them as what ifs. It is in this paragraph, which I'm about to read, that it really stands out though. The remarkable thing, however, is that this difference, often as small as 0.01%, is fixed in the sense that if you held the same race 10 times, you'd get the same overall outcome 9 or 10 times. How can that be? In my experience, it's because that final result is the outcome of all the things that go into preparation, practice, and optimizing the performance outcome. In other words, the result is decided before the first whistle in the match or the sound of the starter's gun. For me, I've often thought about this, the idea that all the work is done before the race, physical, mental, mechanical, whatever it is, but the importance is understanding each part of the performance puzzle and addressing them in preparation. It's what I do as a coach, it's what I do as a cyclist, and it's what I do as a business person. So there's definitely a lot of crossover here in different roles that I play, which I am going to assume in the different roles in your life as well. Using research, knowledge, and experience to predict an outcome of close to reality as possible, which is not leaving anything to chance by covering as many of these elements as possible. And like Tucker says, you're either investing in the pursuit of everything or you're hoping for luck. Understand 
understanding in modern cycling means analysis and the information we have access to is increasing every single year but the outcome of the analysis itself is not the answer much like one of my favorite sayings you can't polish a turd if you put shit in you will get shit out so the understanding is as tucker says in the questions you ask understanding the inputs is about knowing what it takes to win and then optimizing those important factors limited resources can really get in the way here even team sky would bump up against some limited resources in their analysis and execution and for the semi-pro it's about creating a culture around your key factors so that you don't waste time analyzing meaningless things which means that you can then heavily invest in the things that matter and leave everything else alone and this is driven by understanding of the specificity of your event and knowing what it takes to win rather than just being reactive to other forces you set a course and take control of the inputs first and then shift when necessary always question your answers and direction at every opportunity because just like an airplane pilot takes off and is heading in a direction they are making small directional changes after takeoff but they still get where they're going Number three here is innovate, adapt, and change. The only certainty in life is change and that this saying will remain the same. Everything else is up for review. Rules changes, opposition changes, equipment changes. And so success today is by no means a guarantee of success tomorrow. And Tucker sees this happening for two main reasons. The first one is that success inspires imitation. And so your rivals will close the gap simply by borrowing from and enhancing what made you successful. The information about performance usually trickles down from the pro ranks to the semi-pros, whether it's training techniques or equipment. If it worked in the pro peloton, chances are at some point that we'll get a hold of it, at which time the cycle continues and starts again. So the leading edge cyclist may get an advantage from being an early adopter, but as soon as that information or product moves to the long tail, the advantage will diminish again, at which time you need to start new and create a gap again with some other product or information. The second one is that you'll get worse because the tiny things that got you to the top tend to be forgotten once you're there. Whether it's laziness, complacency, lack of motivation, whatever it is, I'm sure all of those play a role some way or another. But has this happened to you? Because when a rider gets stuck in their ways or trains the same way just because they don't know any other way or they believe that's the way that got them where they were before and so they'll stick to it, then this can really signal the beginning of the end. So to avoid becoming obsolete or simply out-trained, you must stay flexible and be able to adapt to stay ahead of the curve. What works and wins in the present is likely to be exposed as inferior in the future. I'm sure there's some old timers listening here. Don't be offended by that word, but you probably have some great stories about cycling training of yesteryear and how different it is to today. And I'm sure we'll be doing the same thing in 20 years time. The key here really then is that the requirement for sustained success is constant adaption. It's not really about reading all the latest scientific papers or even reading all the latest books. It's more about having a go-to trustworthy resource that can filter out bogus information from the legit stuff. So staying on top is also a matter of being prepared to make changes when you come across them. It's no point finding them and knowing that they're there, but then just ignoring them because you're not willing to change. And this is the best quote that sums it up. 
Surviving and thriving means capitalizing on change, not avoiding it. If you aren't moving forward, you're as good as dead. So number four, the paradox of failure. As Tucker puts it, the paradox of failure is that those who wish to be successful are also those who are best able to fail. This definitely stands true in business and crossing over into cycling, it stands true as well. And the good failures air quotes, being a good failure means understanding that innovation, progress, and improvement are never smooth processes, that failure is inevitable, and it is an opportunity to learn. It's not really failure, but rather gathering more and more intelligence. I'm a big believer in failing fast, meaning you go hard and you risk the crash and burn, but do it quickly so you can get moving again faster and smarter. And part of this process for the semi-pro is having a safe environment in which to fail, whether on a micro level like eating the wrong food in training and wasting the ride or blowing up in a B race and wasting the race but instead of your A race. And a coach can really help facilitate failure at the right times so that your future success is not compromised and still comes later. This is another quote from the article. An athlete who pushes their body to the point of failure is demanding adaption that will provide recovery is optimal, shift the limit in the future. A coach who teaches new techniques or tactics must expect players to stumble and feel their way through nervously at first, making numerous errors before success comes when it most matters. So the two key adaption requirements that enable good failure are the first one, understand the failure will happen when you are pushing into any new territory. And this mindset will help you move past any failure much quicker and help you to take as much as possible from it and then enable you to apply the information and change the second outcome. Secondly, the timing of failure is crucial to your season. It may and will happen at unexpected times, in which case, just refer back to the first point I just stated, but outside of that, if you can... Find the balance between stability and innovation and allow for some degree of failure. Try new things when you know there is some leeway or room to bounce back. And this means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But at its core, it's understanding the risks and benefits of trying new things at the right times. Number five, restlessness. Related to number three and four above, high-performance environments are by nature restless. They always seek the next thing and never accept status quo. Complacency and satisfaction are the enemies of progress, and so becoming complacent in any area of your cycling means you are moving behind. So satisfaction is good, but complete satisfaction means the journey is over, and the journey is never over in the semi-pro world because the competition never stops. And Tucker talks about this concept being the essence of high performance because high performance is not about being the best it's about being better if you can be better today than you were yesterday better this month than last month or better this season than last season then you are achieving high performance not everyone can win but everyone can be better it's really a nice way of putting it and allowing everyone to compete against someone which the most important person is that you're competing against yourself this is a really big part of being the semi-pro because we're at so many different levels we're not at the one high performance level where we're trying to win a gold medal or the Tour de France. There are so many different levels. The win for you might be a 10th place in your local criteria. So if you allow yourself to think that getting better means that you are 
are participating in high-performance activities, then it's going to hopefully fill you with some confidence and enable you to pull all of these things in and use them in your training no matter where you are in your cycling. And just to state it plainly, it's not just about competing to win. It's about trying to be the best you can be with the resources that you've got. So adaption, innovation, and the ability to fail exist in this constructive discontent. In cycling and life, discontent drives progress. And the challenge is creating by design a collective restlessness in your life. And this is the art of hunger. Number six, responsiveness. The classic top-down hierarchy is when you're a coach, you give the orders, and when you're the rider, you take the orders. This system is unresponsive, inefficient, and ineffective in a modern world. By allowing knowledge and instructions to flow both ways, it utilizes the knowledge and experience of all parties involved. It effectively, in one relationship with two people, it doubles the experience and knowledge that you're using. That's not entirely true, but I still believe you're better off in a responsive sense if you follow a new way of look at looking at this. And the new way comes with a new responsibility for athletes to take control of their own bodies. I know they have probably been doing this for a long time, but it basically just gives you permission to change the relationship dynamic between coach and athlete if you are the athlete you basically are just consulting with your coach when it comes to what you should do next and I'm sure that you're already interested in your own training and how your body operates under certain conditions but this principle is about not letting that go the moment you get a coach staying active and alert eager and ready to learn and question any decision that your coach makes so you can get the best out of their information and then your information and I thought a quick example would help in kind of explaining this and the best way to really think about it is that if an athlete knows that they're not responding well in a training session they can quickly notify the coach of what happened noting the unusual sensations they felt during the ride or anything that went wrong because they know their body so their understanding of their body is a lot better and they can get that information to their coach quicker where the coach can just make a decision more effectively and quickly because they're not left to solve a puzzle from scratch they're merely just putting in a couple of pieces in place and and it makes the whole process a lot quicker and more responsive. So this saves, this saves time and effort and it results in much more efficient training and recovery. So responsiveness are when all parties involved, coach and athlete, are independent and tasked with some aspect of strategy and tactics and thus able to adapt and move instantly in response to opposition and the changing environment. Number seven, balance. So this is the final one and Tucker rounds out the principles here with balance because each principle has a balance element in it. The sliding scale between innovation and consolidating what you already do well is the best way to picture the role of high performance in cycling training, but also there's a balance between risk and reward, between variety and stability, between freedom and control, and your approach to anything high performance involves deciding where the balance lies for every principle on this list and each input you decide on as part of your journey towards high performance. And this is part of the art of managing your performance and getting the most out of your situation while not risking your investment. Now, parts of that definitely were a little bit abstract and you're going to have to think of examples and try and pull them in. But hopefully you'll be able to set your mind into these certain areas and you were thinking of examples the entire time I was going through that and it changes the way that you think about something so that when you approach it next time, you can get the best result possible and know that these seven principles came from an absolute gun in the high performance world and if you can kind of hone these and adapt these to your training then I really think you're much much better off. 
So moving to the tech hacks and product section, this week it's a little different. It's a product, but I haven't actually seen a picture of it. I thought I would just raise the awareness of this product because it sounds really interesting, cheap, but effective. It's called the NASA, which stands for Nasal Suffocating Aid, and it's a tool which simulates altitude conditions at home. This is where you live, but you don't need to have an altitude tent or any fancy contraptions or anything expensive. It is really, really simple in what it does, and essentially, it just blocks off one of your nostrils. And as crazy as that sounds, they're claiming that this can pop you up as high as two and a half thousand meters, or the equivalent of when you put this thing on your face. However, it goes. I again, I have to say, I haven't seen a picture, but the idea kind of just fascinated me. Where you're controlling your breathing, you have total control because you can still breathe out of your mouth if you choose to. But if you don't, then you put this thing on, and then it's reducing your ability to breathe. Then it's it's simulating that height of altitude. And so the big claims here are. Uh, that it is going to help you with increased oxygen intake, increased economy of moving patterns, better blood parameters, and increased well-being. Now, I have no idea about any of these, but altitude training is still alive and well when you talk to any serious cyclist. So there have to be benefits to altitude training, and if, if this product is definitely proven to get the same results or at least similar results for far less cost and effort, then you've got to say it is an exciting prospect for the semi-pro. So I will keep an eye on it. I'll let you know when it does come a little further. There is a link to some information in the show notes that I will put down so you can check it out, but I'll be keeping an eye on it, and when it does come available, I will let you know. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Nathan Huss singing his rendition of Sweet Home Alabama on Cycling Central. I gotta say, I'm a big fan of anyone that can take the piss out of themselves, but they've got the talent to back it up. And I've gotta say that Haas definitely falls into that category. It comes from an interview that he was doing with Mike Tomolaris and Lachlan Morton was there as well. And Haas himself has aspirations for the Tour Down Under and possibly even the Sun Tour, even though Slagda, last year's winner of the Tour Down Under, is now a Garmin rider, so there is a possibility that Haas has to fall into line there. I really can't wait to see how this one plays out, and if you want to hear more of the song, I'm going to play it at the end of the episode, and I highly recommend you do check out the interview as well, because it's good to see a couple of young cats kind of opening up. Not really, but being pride open a little bit more than most pro cyclists do when it comes to interviews. And it was good to see them relax, chilled out in the off-season, but I'm sure they'll be hungry as soon as the Tour Down Under rolls around. And that is it this week. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. Sweet home on a garment Where the guys in our gall blue Sweet home on a garment Coming to race near you Quirky director known as JV Started the team back in 03 Chose his team just like on Moneyball But is he Brad Pitt or Jonah Hill? Yeah, it's hard to tell Sing it with me Sweet home Alabama <laughs> Where the guys in Algar blue 
protest us anytime, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nathan Hatch, you have got some hidden talents, my friend.